Turn together to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 6. Our text this morning is Luke chapter 6 verse 27 to verse 36. If you would please give attention now to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Luke chapter 6. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Thus far the reading of God's Holy Word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we we ask this morning that You would teach us from Your Word. That You would teach us, O Lord, not just what to know, but that You would show us, O Lord, what we are to do. That You would change us, O Lord. That we would have the power to act as Your children. For we can only do that by the work of Your Holy Spirit. This we ask. In Christ's mighty name. Amen. We began looking last week at our Lord's sermon on the plain. His challenging teaching to us about what it means to be a Christian. And one of the things that we have to think about and understand, is that Christianity is not just a philosophy. It is not just a way of thinking about things. It's not a more correct Platonism. 
or Aristotelian theology. No. Christianity is about an entire change of life and being. It does involve a change in thinking, but it cannot end there. It must affect the way that we live, and we must live out how God would have us think. And so, this morning we come across perhaps the most challenging command from our Lord in all of the Scriptures. It is a command to love our enemies. Now, if we are honest with ourselves, this is an exceedingly difficult task. It's something we don't even want to think about doing, let alone to do. But Jesus has just reoriented our thinking in the last section. He's told us to value what He values, to trust Him with our lives and our beings. And so this morning, we're going to put into practice that new way of thinking that He has given to us. We're going to look at what it means to love as Jesus loved. To love our enemies. And that, I think, shows us four things about our love. First, When we love our enemies, it is a radical love. It is radical in every sense of the term. It must begin at the root and core of our being, and it must be a massive change in our lives. Second, this love must be a sacrificial love. It is a love that comes at a cost. Third, we see that it is an otherworldly love. It is not something that we see on every street corner. Lastly, it is a divine-like love. It is a way in which we are formed into the image of Jesus. A radical love, a sacrificial love, an otherworldly love, and a divine-like love. Well, let's begin then by looking at this radical love. You know, when you say something is radical, you think it's so large of a change that we're not sure that we can undertake it. You think of all of the various fads of the past few years of radical diets. Things where you could only eat foods that begin with the letter D. Or where you could only eat foods that aren't food, they're just liquid. Or you could only eat beef. That's my favorite diet. It's something that takes a bit of getting used to and orienting to. It's difficult to get your arms around. And that's the nature of this love. It is radical and difficult. It's actually hard to even consider and think about. Jesus has given us a picture of what it means to think. And now he says, put it into practice. And it is not something that we expect. He looks at us and he says, love your enemies. Now, do not let the familiar nature of that Bible verse dull the command for you. You see, this was a radical departure from all of the world. The classical virtue of love went something like this. Do good to your friends. Do harm to your enemies. That's love. Because after all, love is something for our good. And so we should do good to those who do good to us. And those who are enemies and oppose us, we should do 
evil to. This is even something that the rabbis took from the Old Testament and worked into their own set of ethics. The book of Leviticus puts it this way, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And the rabbis looked at that and they said, Okay, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your old people. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, they brit large. we got to be good to each other. The sons of the people, the people of Israel. And they shrunk what it meant to be a neighbor. They made them basically the same thing. And so they wound up in the same place that the pagan Greeks did, saying, what love is, is to do good to your friends and to do bad to your enemies. And Jesus breaks in and He says, I have something radical and different for you. But in our modern age, we face yet another hurdle, don't we? As we think about love in the modern age, we think about being passive. What is love? You know the phrases. He's fallen in love. He's smitten by love. Love is something that just sort of happens to you. You're walking down the street and a bunch of love dumps on you and you're walking on clouds. You don't know who it is you love or why you love them. You're just along for the ride, right? But you see, that's not the Bible definition of love. The Bible definition of love is a duty, a commandment to put others before yourself. And you can very clearly love others. You don't have to wait for a feeling. You simply commit to obeying the Lord. This kind of love is extremely difficult because of its nature. When Jesus tells us to love our enemies, He's not saying you should like them or be reasonably kind to them. He uses a very specific word for love. The word you may have heard of. It's called agape. And it is a supernatural kind of love. It is a word for love that by definition means self-sacrifice. Jesus is saying, you must put love into practice, the kind of love that I put into practice. Don't ratchet it down a few notches and think you're obeying. Who are we to love? Well, we are to love our enemies. Now, what does that mean? The word here for enemy actually means someone who is actively hostile against you. When you think of loving your enemies, you should not just think of the annoying kid down the street or the difficult guy at your office. No, you have to think of people who are actively opposed to you. The Bible gives us two wonderful examples of this word enemy. The first is the devil. He is referred to as the enemy. The second is death. It is the last enemy to be overcome. 
What Jesus wants us to love our enemies, He wants us to have in our minds that this is a difficult task and that we must love those who oppose us and hate us. Unless you think you can get away by any stretch of the imagination. This commandment comes from Jesus as a present imperative ongoing command. What does that mean? Well, I think more of us could love our enemies if we viewed the command like a tooth that needed to be pulled or a shoulder that was out of its socket. You know, these things that are extremely painful, difficult, but we know if we just grit our teeth and get through the shoulder being snapped back in, if we get through the tooth being yanked out, after that, things will be better and we won't have to do that again. That's not what Jesus says. You're not to steal yourself up to try and work up one level of love for your enemies and then move on. No, Jesus says this is something that needs to mark your being and character all of your life. It is present and ongoing. But you see, this command is not just hard to consider and think about. It is also hard to do. You see, Jesus goes further in describing this command, describing what this kind of selfless love will look like in action. He gives us three examples. He says, first, do good to those who hate you. And then second, he says, bless those who curse you. And then third, he says, pray for those who abuse you. You see, Jesus makes sure that we know that the rubber does indeed meet the road. We are to do good. We are to love our enemies in what we do, in what we say, and in our hearts. You see, when someone does evil to us, we are not to respond in kind, Jesus says. We are to do good to those who hate us. We are to triumph over evil with good. Do you want to know what this looks like? The Apostle Paul gives us some examples in Romans chapter 12. He says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. If your enemy needs something, give it to him, for by doing so, you will heap coals upon his head. You see, it's a very practical, pragmatic thing that we must take into our hands. But it's not just what we do that's important. Because after all, we all know the temptation to do good to someone when we see them, and then as they walk away, we turn around and do what? Complain about them. Gossip about them. Recount to other people all of the things that they have done to us. But you see, Jesus says, not only are we to do good for others, we are to bless those who curse us. Now, what does this mean? This word curse here has the idea of those who want bad things to happen to us. You are to bless those. You are to want good to happen to those who are actively trying to see your life be miserable. They go home at night and say, oh, I hope she loses her job. 
Oh, I can't wait to the day till their kids run off and never talk to them again. These are the sorts of people that Jesus says we are to bless. Now, does this strike you as odd? Why would we want their good? After all, they're rotten. They want bad things to happen to people. Why should we want their good? But you see, the truth is, isn't that the core of what the gospel is all about? Isn't the gospel all about wanting the good of those who are enemies? Wanting the grace of Jesus Christ to come upon those who are rebels, those who fight God, those who mock God. That's what the gospel is all about. But Jesus keeps probing us, doesn't He? It's not just what we do. It's not just what we say. It goes right to our very hearts, doesn't it? We are to pray for those, to pray for them who abuse us. Now, what does this mean? I think as with many of the sayings in the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, we need to be careful not to be overly literal in what we look at. What what Jesus is not saying here is that the wife who is abused physically and beat up is to ask for more. No. The word here for abuse really doesn't take in the idea of violence. Because after all, that itself would be a violation of the Ten Commandments. No, the idea here is those who falsely accuse and malign us. And when we say that, doesn't that make it a bit more personal? Because if we think abuse is merely being hit with a fist, then we might say to ourselves, well, that hasn't happened to us. I don't know what it means to pray for someone like that. But when it comes to us to say, we are to pray for those who accuse us falsely, who malign us behind our back. You see, when that happens... It takes on a little bit more personal meaning for us. Jesus is not satisfied just with our actions. He wants our hearts as well. This kind of love is a radical love, but it also comes at a cost. It is sacrificial. Loving our enemies is a love that suffers. Jesus gives us a very practical teaching on this. Now, This kind of love is not some kind of warm, fuzzy, feel-good principle. This kind of love is not like just after having eaten a good dinner. No. It's very practical. It has to work itself out in our lives. And Jesus gives several examples of this, starting in verse 29. He says, To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Now again, I don't think this is an a invitation to violence. We are not to go around and say, hey, you punched me in the nose, please punch me in the stomach. No, Matthew makes clear, as he expands on this saying, that when someone uses their right hand and strikes you on the right cheek, you are to turn the cheek. And what that means is, it is a gesture that someone would, with the back of their hand, strike someone in the face. The idea would not be pain and hurt. The idea would be disgrace and humiliation. 
It was the ancient way of yelling at someone and saying, get out of my house. Get out of my church. You don't belong here. You're rotten. And that's actually what they did in the synagogues. They would hit someone and tell them to leave and to shame them and disgrace them. What's the world's response to something like that? You smack me in the face, I'll punch you in the nose. You punch me, I'll hit you with a crowbar. You pull out a knife, I'll get a gun. You hurt me, I'll hurt your whole family. That's the world's response, isn't it? And Jesus says we are to be radical and sacrificial in our love and to do the exact opposite. We are to be willing to suffer humiliation. Not to retaliate, but rather to be willing to be humbled again in public for the sake of our Lord and for keeping the relationship with that person. The Apostle Peter learned this lesson. You remember as the Roman soldiers were coming with the Jewish authorities to take our Lord off to trial and Peter saw what was going on and he took out his sword and he cut the ear off of one of the servants? He said, this is wrong. I won't have this. We won't be abused this way. You won't do this to my master. And Jesus looked at him and he said, put away your sword. And then by forgiveness and grace... Peter comes to the point where he writes a letter to his congregation in 1 Peter chapter 2 and he reminds them that they are not to attack when attacked. They are not to revile when they are reviled. They are to bear with others. There's a second example that Jesus gives to us. We need to be willing to care more about people than our property, than our stuff. Look at the end of verse 29. From the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Now, what does this mean? If we could put it in, in modern parlance, we would say something. If someone takes your sport coat, don't yell at them to give it back. Give them your shirt too. You see, don't let your very first thought be, when someone takes something from you, hey, that's my stuff. Give it back. I deserve to have it back. You see, instead, Jesus says, we ought to be thinking, how can we help the other person? How can we show them the love of Christ? How can we be willing to go the extra mile? Now, this is not an excuse for theft. I'm not asking you to go out this afternoon and to start giving people your shoes and your pants and your shirt, that would, that would be scandalous. But what it does mean is people are going to take advantage of you. You could count on it. And when they do, your first thought should not be, how do I get even? How do I get it back? Your first thought should be, what is Jesus teaching me? And how can I be like Jesus in this moment? What would Jesus do? He would sacrifice. 
There's a third example that Jesus gives to us in verse 30. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Now again, I don't think this is an invitation to take your wallet and start raining money out on street corners. I think what this is referring to is something deeper and of the heart. What Jesus is saying here is, there is a principle to think more about others' need than our own return. As you relate to other people, how concerned are you about being taken for a ride? When someone asks for assistance, do you go through a mental calculation about whether this will be a waste of time or not? Do you say, I'm not really sure what good will come of this. Maybe I'll just go on by. You see, Jesus is saying here, there is a principle involved that we are to engage others and not be worried about what we get out of the engagement. And this finds itself in this golden rule that Jesus gives to us. Because we may ask ourselves, well, what do we do? Not every minute is someone going to come and ask us for a tunic. Someone may not come up to us and smack us in the face. How do we live our lives in this kind of love? And Jesus gives us a biblical principle that is relevant to every single moment of our lives. It's found in verse 31. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Now, think about this. This is well beyond what is reasonable. It might be far more reasonable to limit it by saying, don't do to other people as you would not want them to do to you. We do that with our children, don't we? Would you like to be poked? Would you like to be hit? Would you like to have your toy taken from you? Right? But that only goes so far. Jesus takes it to yet another level. He's saying we need to be proactive in our behavior. We need to take the initiative. We need to do for others what we want them to do for us. We need to be proactive in our lives. This is an obvious difference from the way the world operates. The world does not take this initiative. And it can't because this is a matter of the heart. It's a change of the heart. This is what it means to believe in Jesus. And this shouldn't surprise us because, brothers and sisters, you can't begin with you. You do not have the power to do these sorts of things. You cannot find an equilibrium. The only hope that we have to love others is to have God's love in us. To know the love of Jesus Christ shed on the cross that we might be forgiven our sins, that we might be changed and renewed, we who were enemies to Jesus. Once we know that, then we can begin to apply this golden rule. Because you see, this rule of love is otherworldly. The world's version of the golden rule is something like this. 
Do what you think you can get away with. Do what you think will bring you the best return. But you see, in our lives, these comparisons that Jesus gives to us are to get to the heart. You see, we might do good things if we thought we were getting a return. We would lend to others if we were sure it was going to come back. We would do good to others if we were sure it would redound back to ourselves. And if we did so, then we would begin to think that we were good. Yeah, I lend all the time. Well, only to people that will give it back to me. But all the time. Oh, I'm good to people all the time. Who? Oh, my friends. Everyone who's nice to me, I'm very nice to. We begin then to be self-satisfied in who we are. But Jesus says, this is not what we are to do. We are not to seek some kind of reciprocity. He says, the world does this. They're good to people that are good to them. I think of days before I was a minister and was a lawyer. And I would work on drafting contracts. And you would have the other side, you know, the enemy would try and make changes to the contract just to make you look bad in front of your client. And you tried to figure out whether you could live with that change or not. And one of the best ways to figure it out was if someone made a change and it was a reciprocal change, it applied to both sides, you could say to yourself, well, that's probably pretty fair. Because if it was unfair to me, it would be unfair to them. So they wouldn't have suggested it. It's reciprocal. And you see, we can be tempted to judge all of life that way. What's in it for me? Can I be involved in this? Well, what will come back? Whoa, whoa, whoa. What's in it for me? And Jesus says, we're called to so much greater than that. Our reward is not getting back some money we've lent. Our reward is not getting back some kind deeds for the things that we have done. Our reward is to be made more and more like Jesus. Our reward is to be like our Father in Heaven. You see, this is a change of the heart. This is a great reward that comes to us. There is a fourth and final aspect to this love. It is divine-like. What does it mean to be like God? What does it mean to be sons of the Most High? Have you ever thought about that? It's difficult to think about being like God. We don't know all things. We don't see all things. We can't do all things. We're not without beginning and without end. How can we be like God? Jesus tells us, this is a way. You see, what it means to be like God is to love your enemies. Think about this. God is kind to those who are thankless. All the time. He is kind. He brings blessing. He brings mercy to those who are never thankful to Him. Ever. God is also patient, isn't He? Who is He patient with? The good? 
No, he is patient with the wicked, isn't he? We know that for a certainty right now, even as we sit here. Because if God were not patient with the wicked, the entire world would be burned up in a judgment of fire. But God is kind. And God is patient. And God is gracious with those who are ungrateful, with those who are ungracious. God is gracious with those who are thankless and wicked and ungracious like you and me. All the time. The Father sent His Son to the cross, not for His friends, not for the obedient, not for the righteous, but for His enemies, didn't He? that they might become the children of God. Could you imagine what it must have been like in the early church to think about what God had done for Saul of Tarsus? Can you imagine how difficult it would have been to think about God's blessing being showered on Saul? Could you imagine how hard it would have been to pray for Saul? Not Paul. Saul. And yet we see what the power of God can do in reclaiming His enemies by the power of His grace. Think about how Jesus Himself modeled this love for the ungrateful and the wicked. In the week before His death, He came into Jerusalem. And what did He come into? Cheering crowds. Wanting to anoint Him king. Saying how great He was. How wonderful it was to see Him. And yet, but a week later, they're saying, don't give us Jesus. Give us the murdering thief. Crucify Him. Give Him a death beyond imagining. And how does Jesus respond? Because after all, isn't that the most painful kind of enemy? The one who turns on you? And Jesus responds on Calvary as they drive the nails into His flesh. He prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That is the kind of love that your Jesus has. This is the change that can be found in you and in me as we follow after Jesus. Now you say to me, how can this happen? This is impossible. I can't have that kind of love. I have difficulty being nice to the people who are rude to me in the market. And the answer is, you can't have that kind of love in your own strength. You find that love at the foot of the cross. You find it there in the example of Jesus' love for you. How when you were an enemy, how when you were a rebel, Jesus died for you. This is the kind of impossible love that comes to us. It keeps us near the cross. We see our Lord Jesus Christ and we have His example, but more than that, because of His work, we have the power that comes from Him.
to do the impossible. The work of the living God in your life can do impossible things. This is what it means to have a love beyond all other loves, a love for even our enemies. Let's pray.